When it comes to weight loss, no two people are the same. That's why Noom builds personalized plans based on your unique psychology and biology. Take Brittany. After years of unsustainable diets, Noom helped her lose 20 pounds and keep it off. I was definitely in a yo-yo cycle for years of just losing weight, gaining weight, and it was exhausting. And Stephanie. She's a former D1 athlete who knew she couldn't out-train her diet, and she lost 38 pounds. My relationship to food before Noom was never consistent. And Evan, he can't stand salads, but he still lost 50 pounds with Noom. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. Even through the pickiness, Noom taught me that building better habits builds a healthier lifestyle. I'm not doing this to get to a number. I'm doing this to feel better. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom users compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Linda Bluestein is operating on a deadline. Yeah. <laughs> yes. In all the meanings of that word. <laughs> yes. Linda does not know when this deadline will hit, just that it'll hit very soon. Linda's got cancer, her third round of it, actually. First there was breast cancer, then there was skin cancer. Now she's dealing with fallopian tube cancer. She calls it ovarian cancer's evil twin. It's very rare, and it's very deadly. After some brutal chemotherapy, death doesn't scare Linda anymore. And my imagination is that I think my death will feel like taking off a pair of too tight shoes. Because my cancer has made my world so much smaller. It's going to start to squeeze me, my mind, my soul. And I'm going to take these shoes off and then I'll be free. Uh, so whatever I transition to and when the next door opens, um, I don't have any imagination of that space, but I have an imagination that I'll look at it with wonder and accept it. Unlike most of us, Linda is preparing to have a great deal of control over her death. Earlier this year, she settled a lawsuit against the state of Vermont which has a right-to-die law. This litigation means that even though Linda lives in Connecticut, she's going to be allowed to travel to Vermont and choose for herself when she'd like to die. She wants her family around her, her dog, if possible. Do you think about what time of day you'd want to die? Yeah, actually. uh, I think, you know, 10, 11 in the morning is when I'd like to take the medication. Why? Oh, I'll tell you why. Because if I did it at bedtime, which I was first thinking of, I thought then I might die like at 9 or 10 at night, and then my family's left with this body. Huh? You know, I just want them to have have daytime when things are going to be easier to talk about. Problems get bigger at night. Um, worries get larger. Everything gets bigger at night, but in the daytime, you can handle them. Your whole demeanor changed. When I asked you about death, like you went from kind of like salty grandma mode to like mystical a little bit. Yeah. Yeah. 
this sounds so stupid and and woo woo, but um, it has been in its own way quite a gift of self revelation and understanding and determination and purpose that I lacked before. You lacked it before. Well, I, I was always very efficient at doing things, but I didn't feel like I was choosing those things. People would say, oh, Linda, could you do this thing? It's, you, you'd be great at it. And I would just kind of fall into something I and and do it. But, but now it's, I have a real mission in life. And as, you know, who is uh, Leonard Bernstein said, what you really need to accomplish great things is to have a plan and too little time to accomplish it. Today on the show, Linda's final plan. She doesn't want to just secure the right to die for herself. She wants to secure it for everyone else. I'm Mary Harris. You're listening to What Next. Stick around. This episode is brought to you by Discover. When it comes to your finances, Discover wants you to know they are the credit card that is always there for you. With 24-7 U.S.-based live customer service, everyone has the option to talk to a real person anytime, day or night. Yep, that means no more waiting for, quote, normal business hours just to get a hold of someone. We are talking real service from real people whenever you need it. Get the customer service you deserve with Discover. Limitations apply. See terms at discover.com slash credit card. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. And it would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. (laughs) And activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails. There ain't no going back. Linda Bluestein has always been politically active. And when I say active, I mean that literally. When Linda first moved to Connecticut, after growing up in Texas and California, she made some of her very first friends by marching over to the town hall and demanding the contact information 
for every registered Democrat who lived in her neighborhood. She wanted to invite them to a party at her place. She also wanted to convince them to vote for Bill Clinton. Over the years, Linda has advocated primarily for gun control. She even has a vanity plate on her car. It reads, activist. Linda's husband is a doctor. He's advocated for medical aid in dying for years, working with a group called Compassion and Choices. He and Linda, they came to believe sick people need more control over end-of-life treatment after watching their parents struggle. My own mother died in my arms in a hospital, and she had kept me away from her and my brother, too, because she was so sick toward the end of her life that she didn't have us close by. And I had to fly from New York to California to be with her. And of course, my plane got downed in, at O'Hare and I was on the ground for five hours. And then by the time I got to my mother, it was just the very, very end. And I held her and some x-ray guy came into her room and said, well, we've got to take a chest x-ray. And I said, what are you doing in here? She, she, well, she has pneumonia. And I said, well, she had pneumonia yesterday. She's got it today. You know, leave. And But the intrusions into our family, even being able to be close by her, because the way the bed was set up and where the chairs were, it was, um, I said, that's not going to be how I'm going to go. It's not that Linda's not a fighter. Over the last five years, she's fought off one cancer after another. But her last diagnosis, in 2021, it was especially brutal. At first, they found cancer in her ovaries, then in her fallopian tubes. She needed surgery, then chemo, one treatment after another. You know, once I got my third cancer diagnosis, this last one, I, when I first heard the words out of my husband's mouth, he had just taken the call from the gastroenterologist who had done a CT scan. His face was contorted. He was sobbing. Tears were running down his face. And, and he said, it's your ovaries. And it's already, it's late stage, it's already metastasized. And I hugged him and held on to him. And we stood in the middle of our bedroom floor for a long time, just holding each other. And I felt this lightness, this all of a sudden, I had this image of me walking over to a wall of time clocks, picking my time time card, you know, the slots with the time card. And I punched out and I said, I'm off the clock. Hmm. So it was late stage when they caught it. And I knew this is a, this is a life limiting diagnosis to be sure. And then um, I knew that I had a 90% chance of a recurrence. And within a year I had a recurrence. I took three cycles out of a six cycle course of chemotherapy after the first three cycles, um, my uh, oncologist ordered uh, PET scans and a CA-125, which is a blood test for the cancer antigen. And uh, it looked like the chemo wasn't doing a good job of um, uh, bringing me back into remission. So we stopped treatment. You stopped treatment a few weeks ago? Uh, five weeks ago, yes. How did you feel about making that decision? It was easy. I didn't. I, I was so sick on the chemo that I said I'm not going to go another three weeks. It's not working. You know, I would really. My oncologist knows how I feel about chemo. As long as it's working and I'm going to get a remission out of it, I'll put up with the side effects. But if it's not working, for crying out loud, I don't want to live that way. Yeah, it made me vilely ill. I I know that this means that I'm you know in. Um, Closer to end stage now, I still have uh, 
pretty good times of of lucidity and being awake. I have other days when I just sleep all day. Uh, so I'm not gonna I'm not gonna sleep all day and have bloody noses and and have all the other symptoms side effects of chemo. I know that you've had friends who'd gone to Vermont from Connecticut to use their right to die law. When you understood that your diagnosis was likely terminal, did you just assume you would be doing that as well? Did you immediately begin that process? Almost immediately. Almost immediately. What did that involve? Like finding a doctor in Vermont or what? No, no, no. And not at all. I mean, finding a lawyer. (laughs) (laughs) Um, You immediately went to lawyer. Well, only because my husband had been for at least a decade uh, working with compassion and choices uh, to try to get this Connecticut law passed. Because Connecticut's been raising an aid and dying bill since 1994 and never passed it. And when we came home from the hospital after my diagnosis, he said, I I don't know how to ask you this question, but do you want to maybe work with compassion and choices and and like get into more advocacy now that you have hmm. not much time left and i it, i said in a heartbeat i said absolutely so um then i was put in touch with some of the lawyers from compassion and choices and we talked a little bit about where i would go and we looked at my options we looked at uh new jersey and maine and uh vermont and i said vermont i said no that's where i want to go uh, and they said, "Why are you so strong?" And I said, "Because my friend, you know, uh, is is going to die there." <laughs> uh, yeah, because you had a friend in the cancer community. Yeah, it's interesting because I think a lot of people facing a terminal diagnosis, they would load up on doctors, and it sounds like you went you loaded up on lawyers. <laughs> Isn't that funny? Well, that's why my act, my license plate says activist, and theirs doesn't. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, for heaven's sakes, uh, I've got to live up to that. Now, I, I, I was not wanting this death to go unused in a positive way. You know, eventually, you filed this suit and you won it to make sure you could use Vermont's right to die law, even though you live in Connecticut. Yes, I can imagine feeling a couple of ways after settling this lawsuit, or I, I could imagine feeling relief. I could also imagine feeling like, great, I get to die. (laughs) How did you feel? Um, I felt that there's something about the lawsuit that's beyond me. You felt legacy. We, We put into the lawsuit that the governor and the attorney general and the folks that I sued would advocate for the whole Act 39 to be revised legislatively, so that it won't be about just me. And that's in process right now. Act 39 is Vermont's aid in dying law. It lays out strict guidelines for who can seek to end their life. A patient needs to be capable of making an informed decision for themselves. Doctors have to certify they only have a few months to live. Right now, it also requires patients to be residents of Vermont. That means you need to have a place to live, you need to have a Vermont driver's license. Linda has had friends who went through this whole process of changing their residency just so they could die. Her lawsuit means she won't have to do that. And if Act 39 gets revised, no one else will either. This revision just passed Vermont's legislature. The governor still needs to sign it. 
but the governor has already committed in the, in my lawsuit. I mean, he's already, you know, in writing kind of committed to advocating for that so that he will sign it as no question. More from Linda after a break. You know, I did notice something when I looked into Vermont's right to die law. Over the last decade that it's been in place, only 173 people have gone through the process to obtain the right to die there. That doesn't even mean that they've done it because they may have passed away for other reasons. They've just sort of obtained the okay. It seems so small to me. And I'm wondering what a data point like that tells you. Well, it tells me what I am now writing about in my memoir. That the day I got this diagnosis and went into Yale, New Haven, you know, for my big surgery, taking everything out of me, um, I lost control of my own agency. Now I was just a bit player in my own life because other people were deciding, you know, what my treatment was going to be, what I could and couldn't do. And I mean, I remember my first day at home or my second day at home when a visiting nurse came to my house. And she, she started telling me what I could eat and what I couldn't eat. And I thought, who is this woman in my house? I've been running this. What? Who are you? Go away. Um, and to try to take control of your own care when it's in this uber-specialized area of medicine. I don't know what these drugs are. I can't make determinations. And it's hard to get the truth. And in Connecticut, I think people enter hospice, you know, when they got two days left. Doctors are mm-hmm. not acknowledging, this is my opinion, not my knowledge, but I think the numbers kind of point me in this direction, that doctors hold out hope that you're going to get better so long that when you finally get into hospice, you're gone in under a week. I do wonder if you've had any tough conversations with, I don't know, disability rights activists, people who might think the right to die is a way for people to check out when their body is failing them and that it could even be misused. Um, Yes, I have. But most disability uh, activists, um, uh, most of the disability community are very much in favor of medical aid and dying. I've heard from many of them. There is a small group of activists who talk about this slippery slope because, and I I think when I speak with them, they come from a place of such profound hurt and marginalization. I mean, talk about a historically marginalized community. I mean, they, they have seen how little their lives were valued, but it's hard to to overcome a lifetime of feeling that marginalized and then say that this law is only applies to people who have a terminal diagnosis and have been hospice eligible. People who have disabilities, profound disabilities, are not hospice eligible. They don't have six months or less to live because of a known, you know, progression of a, a lethal disease. And so they don't qualify for medical aid in dying, but they, I can I can hear the pain and the history. So much of your discussion about death is about agency. Yes, is about like maintaining control. And I remember so keenly reading this essay a few years back 
by a terminally ill person who talked about needing to reframe their experience, not as a loss of agency, but as like a new experience. Like when some body part stopped working, they'd be like, okay, well, how am I going to live like this? Like, Mm -hmm. (laughs) how am I going to live without walking? How am I going to live without my hands? How's that going to go? Like being curious about how they're going to move through the world in a new way. I wonder if that's something you even considered doing or if you did like what happened like what what made what made you say no i mean i put faith in in people who are um have the education and the experience and the expertise to do what is best for me and in the same way I turn my car over to a mechanic, not having the slightest idea what that mechanic is doing in there with things, but I know that he'll fix my car. And so I, I never have given up um, faith in um, the the most um, technologically sophisticated physicians to uh, be on my team. I just never said I'm going to do this to the bitter end when, you know, like my mother who had a full, finished a full course of chemo the week before she died three days later. Oof. Now, I don't want to, you know, that's not my choice is to to be that sick and then it's over. I, I'm not going to be on chemo till the end. <laughs> yeah. Have you ever gone face to face with someone who really profoundly disagrees with your choice here? I know that there, you know, there's a Vermont right to life group that is opposed to expanding the right to death in the state. So what happens when when you tell your story and and they tell their story and you're you're right there next to each other? Well, um it's very interesting there are some of my neighbors. Most of my neighbors are, you know, on on my side, but I have one who is is very um Catholic and she is well I appeared on a radio show and she appeared on the radio show before me and said this is just wrong it's morally wrong for society and and there is a benefit to suffering and you know that there is redemptive suffering and uh, it's we can't allow the state to be involved in allowing doctors to kill people and they get very vicious and then two doors down from me is the co-chair of the Judiciary Committee in Connecticut who will have a say in what's happening to the bill this year, like he did the last two years. And he hmm. disagrees with me very much. What do you say to them? I mean, you must run into them at the on the street or around the corner. We've, we've had a conversation recently that, that had gotten less nice than I wish it had. I said, I, I sent the JFK quote, I said, you know, really, I'd like you to invoke your... JFK DNA, when he talked about how religion, whatever it is, should not uh, dictate the laws that we make and the the policies that we put in place in our country, does the state have an interest? So you really called them out as like, this is your religion dictating a state issue. Yeah. And I've said to people, I've said, what interest does the state of Connecticut have in whether I die on the 15th of the month or the 7th of the month, because on the 7th of the month, my family's all with me, and I've decided I just really don't want to wake up tomorrow morning. What'd they say? And, and they said, but, but you should stay. Only God can decide. But I said, that's your understanding of the mystery. 
that is not my understanding. That's not my picture of God. Um, and I'm an atheist, so I really don't have a picture of God. Um, but I do come from a strong religious family and, and faith tradition. I just don't think that they should play a role in what this different states or the United States as a whole has an interest in. Uh, and actually, I think medical aid and dying is the only situation that is, is only me involved. When I take the medication so that I don't wake up again, it's only my life. And it was going anyhow. Yeah. I did notice that you say you're an atheist, but you've been part of a Unitarian congregation for more than two decades. Yeah, three. More than, a lot longer than that, yes. Do you think about what happens after you die, knowing that you don't believe in a big man in the sky? I don't know that it matters that I know. When I came into this world, I didn't know what was ahead of me. I entered through my mother's body into this world, and I think when I exit, I'll exit into some other place, and I don't know. I often play a song with my husband, me on the ukulele, and he on his guitar, uh, by Iris Dement, called Let the Mystery Be. It's, everybody's wondering what and where we all came from, but nobody knows where we're going, so... You know, I'll just let the mystery be. I'm I'm fine. There's not a theology that's going to give you answers. Those were written by men. They were imaginations of what the what the mystery can be. I believe in love and live my life accordingly. But I choose to let the mystery be. Everybody Linda, I have to say, I kind of I hope to have your peace and grace someday. Oh, thank you. Linda Bluestein is a patient who successfully sued Vermont over their residency requirement in their patient choice at end-of-life law. And that's the show. If you're a fan of What Next, the best way to support our work is to join Slate Plus. Go on over to slate.com slash whatnextplus to sign up. What Next is produced by Elena Schwartz, Anna Phillips, Paige Osborne, and Madeline Ducharme. And this week, we are welcoming Rob Gunther. Hey, Rob. Welcome. We're getting a ton of help right now from Laura Spencer. We're led by Alicia Montgomery with a little help from Susan Matthews. Ben Richmond is the Senior Director of Podcast Operations here at Slate. And I'm Mary Harris. You can go track me down on Twitter. I'm at Mary's Desk. Thanks for listening. Catch you tomorrow. Coming soon from Slate Podcasts. So, first it was Dade County. Voters in the Miami area repealed civil rights for gay people by a two-to-one margin. In the late 1970s, cities around the country began rolling back anti-discrimination laws that protected gay people. And then it was Wichita, St. Paul, Eugene. Successful campaigns against the gay community, which shocked us all. A state senator from California watched the laws fall and saw an opportunity. Homosexuality is a most repulsive lifestyle. His name was John Briggs, and he wanted to deliver the anti-gay movement its biggest prize yet. 
California realized that they were coming for us. I'm Christina Cotarucci. This season on Slow Burn, we'll explore how a nationwide backlash against gays and lesbians led to a massive showdown in California. Now it's something called Proposition 6, the Briggs Initiative. It would call for firing any teachers in California who practice homosexuality. Your life as you knew it would be destroyed. We've got to fight back. We can't let this happen in California. The Briggs Initiative would be the first statewide vote on gay rights. Gay rights, now! Gay rights With so much at stake, young people became activists. We were all coming out all day long, every day. <laughs> and activists became leaders. My name is Harvey Milk, and I'm here to recruit you. Slow Burn, Season 9, Gays Against Briggs. Out May 22nd, wherever you listen. If we lose here, it'll be 50 years before we ever get back up again. Like the drag queens say, take out the earrings, sharpen the nails, there ain't no going back.